Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are going to talk all about the clitoris today, ladies and gentlemen. Everything you never knew that you wanted to know about the clitoris will be revealed in this podcast. That's right, in a safe-for-work format. Very safe-for-work, yeah. Caroline and I learned lots of stuff along the way, and mm-hmm. I think it's important for everybody to learn more about the clitoris, which, by the way, can we just start off with one fascinating fact? Please. The clitoris itself, just just the visible part of it outside of our bodies, contains eight thousand nerve endings that's more than twice on the head of a penis guys not to not to make you jealous but (laughs) not to toot our own horn Mm. (laughs) i feel like this podcast is going to be full of euphemisms it it might be it might be but let's uh we we got a long way to go before we get up to those eight thousand nerve endings that's right let's go back in time caroline shall we yeah, we uh, we first want to talk about where this word came from. What does it mean? And it actually didn't originate until the 17th century, which is interesting. This word has not been around forever. But it was coined from the late Greek word kleitoris. And I assume that we will get some correction letters if we mispronounce the following Greek words that we're about to say because... You might not know this, but I am not Greek. Yes, <laughs> and nor am I, Caroline. Uh, and that's clitoris with a K. And there's a word klein in Greek, which means to sheathe, also to shut. So some think it might come from that because of the reference to the clitoris being covered by the labia minora. And then there's also, though, a related Greek noun form, kleist, which has a meaning of a key, latch, or hook to close a door. Mm-hmm. And then there's another Greek word that it could come from that is a variant of the word meaning side of a hill. It's related to the verb to slope from the same root word as climax. Hey, Caroline, I think that one is my favorite, although there are some ancient medical sources that also say that there is a Greek verb clitoriazine that means to touch or titillate lasciviously, to tickle. Well, Kristen... Speaking of tickling, the Germans have uh, my favorite slang word for the clitoris, which is der Kitzler, which means the tickler. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and even just the slang clit originated in the 1950s, although I have a feeling that whoever was in the 1950s saying the word clit was probably just scandalizing so, everyone. So scandalous. So there, there's a little background on the word clitoris, why we call it the clitoris. But let's go back in time as well and cover some clistery. How did we even figure out what this clitoris is all about? I mean, obviously, women were probably figuring out what this clitoris was all about <laughs> for a long time. That's but right. women weren't exactly prominent members of the medical field right. until more recent history. So... Let's start in 1559 with with one of my favorite characters in this episode, an Italian anatomist, Rialdo Colombo. 
Yeah, so of course a man would claim to have discovered the clitoris. Uh, and I like that his last name is Columbo, Kristen, because if his name were in English texts around that time, it would have been Columbus. And so I just like the idea, the parallel between like Christopher Columbus claiming to have discovered the New World when really there were already people there, and then you have Rialdo Columbus claiming to have discovered the clitoris when plenty of women were already there. So he's the Christopher Columbus of the clitoris. Clitstopher <laughs> Columbus, if yes. you will. God, I wish we had art to accompany this episode of these explorers and these scientists. But anyway, so, yeah, he's this anatomist who says that he discovered it. And there were some researchers at a New Zealand university who were like, no, it was already quite known to Greek, Persian and Arabic writers on medicine and surgery, all by, albeit with misconceptions about its function, which I also think is funny because it's like, why are we talking about a body part in terms of who knew it first? But that's not to say that Columbo slash Columbus didn't actually make some sort of contribution to the understanding of what it was. Yeah, he was an anatomist and he did provide these really detailed drawings based on human dissection of the clitoris and he was one of the first to describe its physiological properties and uh, although he did think that it produced a type of female sperm and he did he wasn't really a big fan of the clitoris he called it the amor veneris meaning like the mound of love so he was also very much focused on the uh, the the pleasurable aspects of the clitoris so although Columbo did mistakenly claim that he was the first one there at least he liked it Yes. Not everybody can say that. He liked it, but I mean, I think his whole person, well, he was far from the only person who thought or posited that the clitoris produced some type of female sperm or, or played some role in procreation. Um, but I think he's unique in the fact that he also really dug it. Yeah. Uh, other, other medical or scientific writers at the time were like, well, we think that it could produce sperm and contribute to procreation, but we don't like it. Well, if you go way back before Columbo to, say, Aristotle, they, I mean, he wasn't really talking all that much about the clitoris, but really, this is when you have the idea of women being just mutilated men. Our clitoris is really just a vestige of what should be a penis. Yeah, it makes me think of that song from The Little Mermaid, Poor Unfortunate Souls. Like, that's kind of how Aristotle and Hippocrates saw women. So, yeah, Aristotle just thought that there were adverse uterine conditions that basically turned what should have become a beautiful, functional penis into an underdeveloped and sterile stump of a clitoris. And Hippocrates, the old Greek father of medicine, described women's genitalia on the whole as just our shameful parts. <laughs> so thanks a lot. And he acknowledged that the clitoris existed, but he just thought it was a random protrusion. He referred to it as the columella or the uvula, possibly because it resembles 
the uvula in our throats, a little punching bag that yeah. you see if you open open your mouth. Well, obviously, I mean, the uvula definitely doesn't contribute to sex or procreation. So why would this tiny protrusion have anything to do with it either? Um, Greek physician Serranos of Ephesus also does acknowledge the clitoris exists. Um, he has a different description for it, other than the shameful parts, thank God. Uh, he says this small formation is called the nymph because it is hidden underneath the labia, such as young brides under their veil. No! Oh, well, isn't that precious? So precious, a little nymph. Yes. But I think it should be noted, though, that while these guys essentially were seeing women as sort of the, the mutilated men, we we, should, we we could have had gorgeous penises, but instead we ended up with tiny nymphs hiding under veils. Because it wasn't until, in fact, the 18th century that European scientists started seeing men and women as distinct sexes. This was really just the line of thought that like, okay, we have a guy here, so we're going to figure out women based on what she doesn't have mm-hmm. based on his body. But then, I mean, things also got pretty intense in the Middle Ages, understandably, because it is the Middle Ages. <laughs> Right. A lot of superstition flying around. And, you know, despite the the relative and and minor advances in understanding what this nymph is during the preceding centuries, the physicians in the Middle Ages relied more on fear and and superstition. Uh, They did also think that it was responsible for creating female sperm. But in 1486, the Malleus Maleficarum, which was a guide to finding and detecting witches, called the clitoris, quote, the devil's teat, through which the devil sucked out his victim's soul. So, yeah, we are, women are just, no matter what we do, just being aligned with witchcraft and evil and the devil. The devil's teat. I don't even, I, when I read that, Caroline, in preparing for this episode, I just had to stop for a moment. Because <laughs> the images coming to my mind were quite intense. Um, but moving out of the Middle Ages and into the 19th century, we in, in one of the history books that we read, focusing on the history of the clitoris, the author wrote that the 19th century really should have been the clitoris's <laughs> century. And that, the clitoris's century, I'm not making that up. That is a direct quote. Because in 1844, we have this German guy, G.L. Cobalt, draw a detailed clitoris, not just the external clitoris, but also the internal structure of well as well, which included the erectile tissues that we'll talk about more in a little bit. And this was probably the very first accurate depiction of what the clitoris in total looks like. But it turns out that the 19th century and moving into the Victorian era was not such a great time for the clitoris. Well, I mean, you also had to grapple with the general fear that people had about women in general, specifically and especially women's sexuality, because God forbid a woman actually want, crave or enjoy any type of sexual behavior. So it was also kind of just assumed that in general, women were passionless. They didn't have a sex drive. They were just basically sperm vessels. Um, and that if a woman did have a sex drive, she was considered hysterical and she'd have to go to see a doctor and get treatment. And that treatment was a vibrator. Yeah, the the vibrator technology started to take off in the 1850s. And in, in extreme cases, 
of nymphomania, wherein you have a woman who actually enjoys sex and might even masturbate from time to time, you would have doctors cauterizing or removing the clitoris entirely. There were a lot of methods out there for curing, in quotes, hysteria through clitorectomies. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a scary but very clear illustration of how women's sexuality was viewed. The fact that it's like, it's so abnormal for a woman to like or want sex that it's like, if she does, oh, we better take off the the parts that make her enjoy it. Well, and there are still, there's still clitorectomies that are going on as well in different parts of the world. You hear about this when people talk about female genital mutilation or female circumcision. Uh, This was also, we we, we usually today, probably in the U.S., think about it happening in faraway countries such as Sudan, but this was happening also in Victorian era America. Right, but during this period, some people were all about the clitoris. They understood that it served a great purpose. In 1852, for instance, Dr. Jules Guillaume wrote a book about sexuality that wasn't actually published until 1888, 10 years after his death, because it was so scandalous. And he wrote that there exists an immense number of ignorant, egoistic, brutal men who do not bother to study the instrument that God has entrusted to them. Oh, well, and one of those arguably egoistic and brutal men was likely Dr. Isaac Baker Brown, who was president of the Medical Society of London in the 1860s. And in 1865, he published what became a a widely circulated medical book that put forth his uh, ideas for curing insanity, epilepsy, hysteria and catalepsy all through clitorectomies. Yeah, and it's interesting to to read about people's views from this time period because we have Dr. Pierre Garnier in 1891 who was definitely not a fan uh, and didn't believe that the clitoris could or should contribute to any type of like sex life between people or solo sex lives at that. He said that to claim that this minuscule apparatus, which is most often an insensitive little button, so long as it has not been touched or artificially manipulated, is the most active erogenous center, is to implicitly accuse all girls of once having resorted to masturbation or of one day becoming debauched. So, I mean, right there you have this doctor who's basically saying, like, the fact that you were even insinuating that it is part of sex, part of sexual activity can make someone enjoy sex. That's implying that our beautiful, fragile, angelic, nymph-like women, that they're debauched. Well, it's telling, too, that that quote came in 1891, which is a few years after something really important happened in the history, the medical history of the clitoris. Because in 1884, doctors were able to see procreation, the sperm fertilizing the egg on a microscopic level for the very first time. And they realized that, okay, there is no such thing as female sperm, like the lubricant in a woman's vaginal canal has nothing to do really with, uh, it doesn't have any kind of fertilizing qualities, and it doesn't come from the clitoris. And oh my God, the clitoris has absolutely nothing actively to do with reproduction. So 
Why should we even care about it? Well, why should we care about it? But also, oh, God, you mean women have something on their bodies that is just for sexual pleasure? Exactly. And so not only did they demonize it because that means if you're messing around with your clitoris, that is because it it gives you sexual pleasure. Therefore, you are debauched, as Garnier wrote. And then also medically, they were like, oh, well, we don't really even need to study it because it is it's useless. It's like the appendix of the vagina. (laughs) Thank God it can't explode. Um, ideas about women's sexuality, though, it's not like they were so much better when we get into the 20th century. Um, around World War One, there was this case of a dancer named Maud Allen, who was essentially attacked for existing outside social norms, sexual norms. And of course, by that, I just mean, you know, she had sexuality and danced. She was a, an exotic dancer who attracted a lot of attention because during this period, that was very scandalous. It also so happened that she was a lesbian. And this sensational libel trial in Britain exploded around Maud Allen when she brought a libel suit against this guy named Noel Pemberton Billing, who was an editor of a right-wing journal, The Imperialist. And The Imperialist was claiming that there was this black book of 47,000 World War I British turncoats who had been turned gay by the Germans. And since Maud Allen was a lesbian and was also performing in Oscar Wilde's Salome, there was this item in The Imperialist about if you went to see Maud Allen dancer, highly erotic at the time, dances in this production of Salome that you would be among some of those British turncoats. And he headlined this little news item, the cult of the clitoris. Yeah, which is funny to see this anxiety, this deep, deep anxiety, which I get. Social norms, gender norms, war, all of this good stuff going on. It's quite a melting pot of, of you know, all these things getting stirred up. But she, Maude Allen, was so popular that they had to continue adding shows. And she was so popular, not just with gentlemen who were coming to watch her dance in such a seductive fashion. I mean, women, socialites, mothers were bringing their daughters to see this woman perform with their own set of binoculars to further examine her dances. So, I mean, that's got to be anxiety-inducing for a guy like Pemberton Billing, who, you know, he's like, oh my gosh, society's changing. Women are going to see women dance. Well, it's interesting, too, that in this five-day trial that ensues, a lot of Britons didn't even know what clitoris meant. Right. Because he assumed that when he made that headline, The Cult of the Clitoris, and he was right, you know, not a lot of people would know what it meant. But if you did know Mm -hmm. what clitoris meant then that meant he would deviant. Right. And so Billings actually cited Allen's familiarity with the term clitoris as evidence that she was a deviant. He said that it's an organ that, when unduly excited, possessed the most dreadful influence on any woman. And so just this combination in his mind of her being a lesbian, an exotic dancer, and someone with knowledge of such an esoteric term as clitoris, she's got to be a sexual deviant, and she's got to be somehow in cahoots with the Germans. Well, and if we step back... A little bit to 1905, we have Sigmund Freud coming in 
dealing yet another blow to the clitoris because this is when he puts forth the idea that if you are a woman who is having clitoral as opposed to vaginal orgasms, then that means that you are not developed, that you're like stuck in adolescence. Yeah, he was one of many physicians and clinicians and psychologists who who didn't deny the existence of the clitoral orgasm, but said that that is something that adolescents do, children do, adult mature women only have vaginal orgasms and um, a woman who could not orgasm through vaginal intercourse was obviously frigid. And that frigid was a term. It wasn't just like an insult thrown around. I mean, that was a term used to describe a whole slew of women. Yeah. And there was a paper that we were looking at called Waking Sleeping Beauty, the premarital pelvic exam and heterosexuality during the Cold War. And it talked a lot about how uh, doctors at this time, I mean, leading all the way up to, you know, and during the Cold War, as the title of the paper implies, vaginal orgasms were considered to be the hallmark in the bedroom of a stable marriage and thus of a secure community. Yeah. So more, you know, just more norms. Norms everywhere, Kristen. So now that we are into the Cold War by way of this paper that Kristen just cited, we obviously have to bring up famed sex researcher Alfred Kinsey, who in 1953 publishes Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, in which he dismissed the vaginal orgasm and pointed to the clitoris as the source of pleasure. He wrote that the vagina walls are quite insensitive to the great majority of females. There is no evidence that the vagina is ever the sole source of arousal or even the primary source of erotic arousal in any female, which is groundbreaking. Yeah, and then Masters of Sex fans might be aware of William Masters and Virginia Johnson's research that happens in the mid to late 1960s. And it's in 66 that they published their work on the phases of sexual stimulation. And they observed that both vaginal and clitoral orgasms had the same stages of physical response and argued that clitoral stimulation was the primary source of both kinds of orgasms. So finally, finally, we have people saying, you know what? The clitoris is not so bad. In fact, (laughs) it is in many ways good. (laughs) It is in many ways good. And then two years later, in 1968, radical feminist Anne Cote writes The Myth of the Vaginal Orgasm. And Say what? Right. A myth? A myth. What does it mean, Caroline? Well, she basically attacked as fraudulent the idea that women could only orgasm through vaginal intercourse. She said that the idea, that idea created psychological problems for women and it served as a critique of heterosexuality in general and she said that sex had been defined for so long from purely a male phallocentric perspective. And it's not that she's necessarily wrong, but I think Masters and Johnson were way more on the nose as far as how orgasms work because so Cote is writing that, you know, the vaginal orgasm is a total myth that never happens. Whereas before people like Freud were saying vaginal orgasms are the only way to go. When in reality, if we start talking about anatomy, which we will hear in a second, 
there is a whole beautiful, complicated, wonderful, internal, clitoral structure that is stimulated by vaginal intercourse. So it's really not either or. And you guys, we don't have to fight about it. We don't have to fight about it. But I will say that it is worth considering, and I think that this is a lot of what Coates' theory is getting at in terms of the phallocentrism, that for so long, and even today, just the word sex, when you think of sex, it is implied that it is a penis going into a vagina. And mm-hmm. so in, say, Freudian terms, in order for a woman to be, uh, you know, healthy and adjusted in the, the correct psychoanalytic phase or whatever of her adulthood, that requires her achieving orgasm through vaginal penetration. Right. With a penis. With a penis. So it, then things are coming around to say, oh, well, penis not necessarily required, but there are, like Caroline said, there is a lot more to it on the inside, which we're going to talk about in glorious, glorious detail when we come right back from a quick break. All right, so Kristen and I hinted at the, well, didn't hint, we told you flat out that there is is a fabulous internal structure going on with your clitoris, and, you know, I... My my whole attitude reading about this, the history of the of the study of the clitoris and the and the history of the science of it, I just I'm like this this poor this poor body part, it gets no attention, and it's really not until the late 20th century that people even start going, should should we look inside there? Should we should we figure out what's going on up in there? Because it turns out that all we see. On the outside, with the hood and the glands, that's gland, not glanda, with a D, is but the tip of an iceberg inside of us. Although iceberg might not be, iceberg kind of <laughs> lends itself to frigid, so that might not be the best <laughs> analogy. It's the tip of something fabulous. How about that? (laughs) That's right. So in the 1990s, researchers performed an MRI that revealed a very elaborate structure to the clitoris, most of which is internal. And in 1998, urologist Helen O'Connell described the, quote, clitoral complex, the important internal clitoral structures and their dimensions in a groundbreaking journal of urology paper. And it should be noted, too, that there had already been MRIs of the internal structures of penises that had been done in the 70s. And finally, in 1998, O'Connell's like, oh, can we please apply the same technology to look inside the vaginal structures to see what's in there? Because, oh, surprise, there's all of this stuff. Yeah, and in a 2005 paper, O'Connell criticized typical textbook descriptions and illustrations saying that there is no way that you can give an accurate portrayal of all of the amazing things that are going inside, going on inside a woman in their clitoral structures by just showing a single plane. You know, you, you've seen this in textbooks. It's just like the side cut of like, here's the uterus and here are the ovaries. There's the vagina and the butthole. But there's, I mean, there's a whole like amazing sculptural structure going on inside us. Who knew? And to give you an idea of the scope of this clitoral complex that Caroline and I are about to jump out of our seats <laughs> with excitement discussing. It contains at least 18 distinct interacting functional 
parts comprised of muscular, erectile, and sensitive tissues. And this is what in 1884 G.L. Cobalt had drawn. But it took from then until the late 90s and the early 2000s for us to come back around to it and really give it its due. Right, and adding to this modern science of the clitoris, in 2009, surgeons Odile Buisson and Pierre Foldes produced the first complete three-dimensional sonography of a stimulated clitoris, because this is important, too, because there's different stages of our genitalia if we are aroused or not or having intercourse or not. Things don't always look the same in one stage or another. So they actually did this research over a couple of years without any major funding. So that should tell you about how people view the clitoris and uh, women's sexuality and genitalia today as well. Anywho, they were actually going in search of this uh, G-spot you might have heard of, and they ended up just finding all of this other beautiful stuff. During the search. Yeah, and it turns out, based on what we now know about the structure of the clitoral complex, which we'll go into more detail in just a second, but the G-spot might simply be where the anterior vaginal wall makes contact with the internal clitoris. It's not necessarily this magical spot, one spot, and, and and that's it, sort of in that two-dimensional way mm-hmm. that we often think of, but rather it's the convergence of all of this stuff. I, I wish I had a more elegant word than stuff to describe it going on inside of us. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that stuff. So we have the glands, S, glands S, uh, which is what you see on the outside. It's what people call a button, but which is really like an iceberg, but not an iceberg because we're not frigid. It's our little hill. It's our little hill. That's right. The, the tickler. But so, okay, here's here's basically a rundown. We're going to do our best to describe this uh, with words, but I recommend that you look it up for an image. Go to Stuff Mom Never Told You dot com there is a blog post up called a brief history of the clitoris and it contains a picture of exactly what we're talking about and it is safe for work oh excellent yes well because the structure kind of looks like an awesome little inner tube with some shoots coming off of it that's around the vaginal canal it reminds me of an airplane neck pillow perfect Hmm. when you blow it up yeah 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 it's inflatable yeah so The glands, which is what you see on the outside, is attached to that internal structure, which we're just crazy about. And that internal structure is made up of two corpora cavernosa, which is erectile tissue, that encircles the vaginal canal. The corpora cavernosa then splits to form two what are called crura, or it's more erectile tissue, that forms a a wishbone shape. And at rest... They point toward woman's thighs, and when erect, they stretch back toward the spine. And then near each of the crura on either side of the vaginal opening are the clitoral vestibules. And they're actually up under the labia majora, so inside the labia majora. And when engorged, they cause the vulva to expand Outward. Yeah, and so, you know, this is all a bunch of erectile tissue that does swell when you get aroused. And that basically cuffs the vagina so that a vaginal orgasm 
is more like an internal clitoral orgasm. And then we can all join hands and be friends and no longer debate a clitoral uh, orgasm versus a vaginal one. Because they're all sort of different types of the same thing. It's just different methods to stimulate the same structure. Yeah. And I do really like how this wrapping around of, of the structure is often described when it becomes engorged as it giving us a hug. And what a hug. It's a, a very giving hug. That's such a hug. That it gives. I love that. And a lot of people, uh, there are a lot of artists, activists, people out there talking about the clitoris and women's genitalia in general to sort of bring awareness that, hey, we're sexual beings too. Your genitals aren't gross. Get in touch with your sexuality. And the, the whole reason behind this push to sort of make more women aware of their anatomy is that so many women report having trouble orgasming. Yeah, about one in three women on average has trouble reaching orgasm with a partner. About one in 10 has never reached orgasm, whether alone or with a partner. And what often makes it a challenge is this shame often associated with our bodies and with our genitals. There are women that I have known, in fact, who are adults who have never masturbated. Um, there are women who have never looked at their own vaginas or they looked once and they were so weirded out by what they saw because they didn't know what to expect or it didn't look like what they saw in pornography that they assumed that it is wrong and it's not the way it's supposed to look. And that's that's not the case at all. Right. There was a study, a 2010 study in the psychology of women quarterly that looked at undergrad college women's attitudes toward their bodies and their genitals that found that greater dissatisfaction with genital appearance was associated with things like higher genital image self-consciousness during physical intimacy, which in turn was associated with lower sexual self-esteem, sexual satisfaction and motivation to avoid risky sexual behavior. So basically, If you think that this important part of yourself is awful, ugly, dirty, shameful, or you're afraid of it, then how can you possibly enjoy sex? And not surprisingly, the researchers concluded that there is a strong relationship between enhancing the satisfaction with the natural appearance of genitalia with the development of a healthy self-concept and long-term benefits of sexual safety and satisfaction. Because a lot of times when that sort of insecurity over your genitalia happens or you you don't think it looks right, like it, it, it usually tends to affect you in the bedroom in the sense of putting the other person's sexual needs and desires over your own. And so not surprisingly, the researchers then concluded that if you enhance that satisfaction, if women are more comfortable and accepting of what their vaginas and vulvas and clitorises look like, then it usually relates to a more satisfying sex life and also just a healthier sexual self-esteem. Right, exactly. And one person who's pushing what she calls cultural clitoracy is Susan Eckberg Steeritz, who wrote a paper in 2013 for the Berkeley Journal of Gender, Law, and Justice. And she talks about how cultural clitoracy 
is this thing that denotes what an adequately educated person should know about the clitoris, which we hope we're contributing to right now. But she talks about how the clitoris is, quote, a despised body part because it is an obdurate reminder of women's independence and power and supports women's liberation. And she talks about how societies shape versions of what is proper adult sexuality, conforming with values that exist in that society. And she says, quote, unfortunately for women, Western culture equates being human with being male. Accordingly, Western culture considers sex proper when it is confined to actions needed to produce children. Yeah. And I mean, I just think that there is a basic gap in understanding. I mean, clearly, as we've talked about in this podcast between simply how female sexual pleasure even works and how girls are educated in that regard versus boys and how a lot of times our concept of what sex is and what sexual pleasure is usually is based around the model of vaginal intercourse. Not that there's anything wrong with vaginal intercourse. It's just also important for girls and women to understand that we have this part of our bodies that has, like you said, nothing to do with reproduction whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It is there purely to facilitate pleasure and that's nothing to be ashamed of. And being curious about it is nothing to be ashamed of. And exploring it is nothing to be ashamed of either. And if you want to uh, check out the ways that maybe other women are trying to raise cultural clitoracy awareness, uh, you should check out New York artist Sophia Wallace, who in 2012 launched a multimedia project called Clitoracy. And it includes all sorts of art installations and even a clit rodeo where you can ride... Like, like a bucking bull at some sort of honky-tonk bar, you can ride a giant golden clitoris. Yeah. And so I, just, I do wonder if anybody's actually seen that, like gone to it and participated in this art movement. To, to ride the clitoris. To ride the clitoris. Well, and also, I mean, that looking at the, this might sound crass, thinking of, oh, well, riding the clitoris, what, what, what of that? But... The sculpture that she created for this of that engorged internal structure will give you a sense of the extent of the size of it as well. Um, I mean, I mean, it's not the the external glands is so diminutive mm-hmm. compared to it's a nymph. Yeah, it, it is rather a nymph compared to the powerhouse that is inside of us. So, I mean, if we sound like we're super high on Clitor, clitoris knowledge we are because it's incredible to learn about these things inside of us that really it's taken us this long to really begin to figure out. Right. Well, I feel like there's just such a general societal fear of and always has been of women's sexuality and, and independent sexuality and, and a desire to want to have sex and enjoy it. Um, and I feel like that has definitely contributed to sort of men being afraid of learning more or knowing more or caring about women's both both their physical structures and their their sexual excitement but it's also contributed to plenty of women being afraid to learn more about it and so i definitely i'm glad we could talk about it yeah and i just wanted to add one final note about that surgeon pierreful days that we mentioned uh who in 2009 along with his uh, research partner, Odile Boisson, produced those first 3D ultrasounds of the clitoris. He pioneered a surgery using this research 
to treat women who had undergone female genital circumcision. And by understanding this internal structure of the clitoris, he's been able to perform more than 3,000 restorative surgeries to give these patients back sexual pleasure that had been taken from them through the clitorectomies or other kinds of uh, female circumcision techniques. So it's, it's, it's about female pleasure and us knowing more about our bodies, but it's also about this kind of healing as well, very real physical healing for women around the world too. So with that... Let us know your thoughts. I'm curious to know what people are thinking. Do you love your clitoris? Guys, what do you think about the clitoris? There were a lot of letters that we ran across in the process of researching this, too, from guys asking sex educators about how to find the clitoris. Where is it? And what do you do? And that's not a question that you should be ashamed of. That's a great question for a straight guy to want to know about his female partner. So, and, and also side note too, um, when it comes to statistics about women reaching orgasm, there, there was a recent study that found that lesbians tend to achieve orgasm more regularly than straight women, possibly because women might be a little more acquainted with the clitoris. Imagine that. Imagine that. So with that, I have finally no more final thoughts. <laughs> Email us momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast and message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple of letters here in response to our episode, Mama's Boys. This one is from Alex and she writes I thought I would chime in with some comments about dating someone who is very close to their mother as someone who is friends with his parents I understand and support being close to your parents however there does come a point where it goes too far my best example of this going too far would be after we had been dating for well over a year at this point he was still spending more of his free time and weekends with his mother than he was with me yes I know great relationship So this one week, he was only going to be free for one night on Friday. So after getting off work four hours late, he finally makes it to my house. Not more than five minutes after getting there, he gets a call from his mother. So going into another room to talk to her for 15 minutes, he comes out and says he has to go to his mom's house. Concerned, I asked, what's wrong? This being the one night we will see each other for a week. Apparently... His mother had a bad date and is feeling insecure. I could probably dredge up more stories on the same thread as this one, but this is definitely a gem of a story, especially since it hits both of your requests for stories about dating mama's boys, bad stories about dating mama's boys, and the stereotypical gay mama's boys. Definitely enjoying the podcast and keep up the good work. So thanks, Alex. All right, I have a letter here from Rachel. She says... My primary partner, I'm polyamorous, is definitely a mama's boy. And even though his mom and I don't really see eye to eye, I'm really glad for his less macho leanings. My partner's mom fled Europe to get away from his dad and raise my partner and his brother as a single mom and immigrant. As should be expected, both my partner and his brother have a lot of love and respect for their mom. One thing I found to be much more present in my partner and his brother is a willingness to listen to women and an openness to femininity. 
And they both tend to date strong-willed women, which is a part of why I butt heads with my mother in thin, she calls her. Anyway, I've never had my partner's relationship with his mom get in the way of his relationship with me. But his dad being back in the picture has caused a little drama because his dad doesn't appreciate the avoidance of machismo as much as everyone else does. Of course, true to form, my mother in sin has managed to keep her husband in line, and that makes me cackle a bit. So thanks, Rachel. And thanks to everybody who's written to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, which also includes all of our sources so you can follow along with us, go to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 